Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your Bible and the teaching us what you'd want us to know. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this section and teach us what you would have us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 28. We're going to be starting at verse 14 where we left off. The first part of this chapter was all about the judgment falling upon Israel and the severe judgment following upon Israel. And we, we looked about God uh, teaching them line upon line, word upon word, precept upon precept, uh, here a little, there a little. And uh, so we're going to continue with this chapter in verse 14. Wherefore, hear the Lord, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men that rule this people which is, which is in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell, are we at agreement? Then when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have, hit, have we hid ourselves." Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plum, plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be dis disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then you shall be trodden down by it. For the time that it goes forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over, and day by night shall it be a vexation only to understand that report. For the bed is shorter than the man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than he can wrap himself in it. For the Lord will rise up as in Mount Perizim, and he shall be wroth as the valley of Gibeon, and that he may do his work, his strange work, to bring to pass his acts, his strange acts. Now, therefore, be you not mockers, lest your bands be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth. All right, so we're going to look at this one because it's kind of strange when we first listen to it. Um, and it's kind of interesting when God puts things in very poetic language and, and all of that. But in verse 14, wherefore... Hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. And this is just him continuing. Uh, you know, hear, you know, hear and obey, hearken, listen to the Lord, you scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. And God is not being very kind even to the leaders. Remember before, he was telling the leaders, you're scornful, you're proud, you're arrogant. And here he's continuing, you scornful men. And he's really referring to their attitude toward God. And this has been the case. When people get judged, there's an attitude of scorn against God. Your, your rules aren't important. What you say is unimportant. Uh, it happened here with the people as you're getting ready to go into captivity in the northern kingdom. Later on, it's going to happen to the southern kingdom when they're just going to scorn God. We go back to 
the days of Noah where people were ignoring God. Noah preached for 120 years that God was going to destroy the world. Now, granted, he did tell them it was, rain was going to fall from the sky that they had never seen and flood the world, so his, his, his message sounded totally, <laughs> totally insane. But for 20, 120 years, he preached a message to the people, and they just ignored God. And we see this over and over. We even see it in our day and age. People are ignoring God. They feel they can just go out and do what they want with no consequence. And that is what happens as a nation, a country, an empire gets ready to fall. They get to that point where they're just saying, ah, we've been doing this for so long, nothing's happened. And that's sometimes a problem when God gives grace and mercy to people they start to think of, oh, well, it's always going to be that way. And even in our own lives, sometimes we go, we get away with something for a while because God's trying to be gentle with us and say, are you ready to confess? And, the, and we go, well, no, I, I got away with it. No big deal. And we keep doing it. And God says, no, it's been a big deal. And now we're going to bring this judgment. And this is what he's saying to the people here. And he says, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with hell, are we in agreement? And this is kind of an interesting statement here because they're saying we are safe and secure is what they're saying. All right. Uh, we're okay. God is not judging. And remember, we've told you at the beginning of this chapter, he was saying in Jerusalem, they're saying we're safe. And in Samaria, they're saying, saying we're safe. And the, the attitude of the Jews during this whole period of time was, we are God's people. Nothing we do is going to make God take us out because we're his people. And in Jerusalem, they're going, we've got the temple here. God, God surely wouldn't let Jerusalem fall. And so they're sinning. They deserve punishment. On one side of the coin, they know they deserve punishment because they know, theoretically, know the word of God. And yet they're rejecting it, saying, we've got God's temple here. And even in Jesus' day, that was what they were saying. We've got, we've got God's temple here. You know, we, can, we can do what we want. God's not going to let his temple be taken, taken away. And this is what he's saying in a very poetic language. You've made, a, you've made a covenant with hell. You've made a covenant with death. You think you're secure. And... You know, their, their covenant really wasn't directly with those things. They were just so absolutely sure that God was not going to judge them, that it really was. Anytime we, we do things wrong, and this is why David, when he sinned with the, the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, in Psalm 51, he said to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Okay, now... You know, it, it strikes us as funny, but, you know, truthfully, all sin is really against God. Because we can't really sin against anybody else, even though other people get hurt. And, but the sin is against God. And these people are saying, you know, we're sinning, we're sinning against you, God, and we are safe. You're not going to do anything to us because we're your people. Almost like the, the spoiled rich kid whose dad bails him out all the time. Well, you know, nothing's going to happen to me because dad's going to, to buy whatever it needs or give you the gift of whatever you need, and he's going to buy me out of this trouble. And uh, that's kind of where they're looking at God. You know, God, uh, 
we're, you're, you're gonna, your scourge is going to overflow us, and we're, you know, and we're, we're hiding. And it says, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we are, have hid ourselves. We're okay. God has not judged us. Our country's in that spot. We have not been judged. We're okay. We're just having unrest everywhere we look and crazy weather everywhere we look and, and economic problems everywhere we look. Uh, our country is being judged right now. And right now it's just the finger of God saying, repent. If we repent, we can be a, a great nation again. If we don't, we've got lots of problems coming our way. And those of us who are Christians aren't going to escape the problems just because we're Christians. When our nation gets judged, because truthfully, if our nation gets judged, it's because Christians did not do our job in evangelizing and getting the, bringing the country to repentance. So we, theoretically, even though we didn't do the sins necessarily, we didn't bring enough salt and light into the world. And not, it, not every individual, but, you know, but as a nation, there's a lot of Christ, so-called Christians that aren't bringing God's light into the situation and saying it's okay. We will be, I don't know that punished is the right word. We will be caught up in the punishment that the nation will go under. When Israel was judged and went into captivity, not every single individual in the nation didn't worship God. Now, the majority didn't worship God. But there were people that were taken and brought into captivity and sent into slavery who were righteous. Take a look at Daniel. Daniel was hauled away with his free friends and, and they were very righteous men and yet they experienced this. During World War II, there were many Christians that were, were executed and killed and sent to concentration camps because they got caught up in the judgment that was going on in the, in that, in the world at that time. So yes, the Christians do not, the rain falls on the just and the unjust and the storms fall on the, now does God lessen it on us possibly? Maybe. Or does he give us the grace to endure it? Definitely. So whatever we're going through or will go through, we will have grace to go through it. We will be able to give his testimony in front of people. But it is a time when things are going to happen. And we don't get away from everything just because. And, you know, well, God, I'm a Christian. I don't, you know, it's nothing bad should happen to me. I, I've been repenting. I've been trying to follow you. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, you know, uh, Isaiah was put into a log and sawn in half. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet, every time we turn around, we find him stuck in a cistern or the dungeon or arrested and hanging out in jail. Yeah. Uh, Paul chased out of town after town, uh, beat, put into prisons. Uh, you know. I never thought of that way, but that is so true. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't escape yeah. Yeah. just because we're Christians. You know, God, even with those, with those, there's probably reasons he did what he, what he allow, allowed coming their way. And, uh, because we've got to be careful when we say the good Christians because, you know, they're probably not all that much better than we are in the long run. But they have learned, they have learned lessons the hard way. Well, they were 
Well, when you look at them, they, that's not true, you know, when you look at their life. But the thing we look at is, and you've, most of you guys have been reading some of the biographies, so you know these guys start out as, as scoundrels and rascals, and, and they learn the long way. I'm right now reading another book on George Mueller that really is delving into his lessons that he learned and, and reading the letter, you know, putting in some of the letters that he had. And, you know, and uh, even after becoming a Christian, he had a lot to learn the hard way, just like we did uh, or do. <laughs> Uh, Moses learned a lot of lessons the hard way and was still learning lessons after leading the people of, of Israel for 40 years and he was still learning lessons. We will learn lessons for the rest of our life because God will show us how really despicably wicked we are. Now we kind of notice it in our own lives because we, we know ourselves to a degree. And we may or may not notice it in other people because usually we're pretty good at hiding the worst parts of ourselves from other people. And so we don't really fully know in most cases. We look at somebody, wow, aren't, aren't they a wonderful Christian? Now, now if we could see their mind and their thoughts and, their, and the decisions they have in, when they're alone, we might not think that they're so wonderful <laughs> because they have the same thoughts and problems that we have when we're alone and, and we have those thoughts and, and things that come across our mind. So the people here have basically said, you know, God's not going to judge us. He hasn't judged us for, a, you know, we've been here for 1,200 years. God hasn't judged us. The, the temple's here. Uh, yeah, there's some bad things that happen once in a while, but we are not going to go into captivity. We're going to be okay. And God has another word for them. <laughs> All right, verse, verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion, a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believes shall not make haste. This verse should sound pretty familiar because in the New Testament we're told that that's talking about Jesus. All right? Uh, and God is telling them, you think you're safe now, but you really, you're not there yet. I have a stone that's going to make it, make it secure. I've got a stone that is going to be that precious cornerstone. It's my son who's going to die in Jerusalem uh, and be the foundation stone of the new Jer Jer uh, Jerusalem in, in the heaven and be the foundation stone of the, the church. And it says that he's a tried stone, a tested stone. And you know, this is the thing that God came to this world to live as a human being and live perfectly. And this is the thing Peter tells us that Jesus has been tempted like as everybody else. And, you know, we got to think about that. He was hungry, so that gave him a desire to, for food that could have led to theft or whatever else, you know, just as would anybody else, or, or lust or gluttony. He had a physical body, so there had to be the temptation possible for lust and all of that. Uh, Satan tried, you know, Satan himself was the master at trying to t test him. You know, if, if, you know, we talk about being tested by Satan, and very few people have ever been truly tested by Satan. Jesus has been tested by Satan. Yeah. Uh, and I had my suspicion that during the time Jesus was alive was probably a very peaceful time around the world. Only having people had to worry about was their own sinful temptations in their body, which was bad enough. 
I believe Satan and all of hell was centered in Israel during for 34 years. Let, let's let's make we've got to make Jesus fall. And I believe that we just had that one incidence, but I believe that he was under attack constantly from not just Satan, but every major you know, head of the demonic world was there because this was their chance. If we, can get, if we can get God to sin, we've really won. So I really do believe the rest of the world was pretty, pretty tame. There was not a lot of temptations. Now, we've talked about this, you know, we'll sin plenty without any temptation, period. You know, we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We have plenty to keep us busy and keep us sinning without any temptation. Satan, you know, taps into our, our lusts and our desires. But here, Jesus is a tried stone. When we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, I've had this problem. I just can't get it over. He knows what it's like. The only advantage he had is he didn't have a sin nature to add to the temptation. You know, he, he only had external temptations from Satan and no internal oh. desire for it. Okay, so he's not like us because he wasn't born a man. He wasn't born, he wasn't born of a male with a sin nature. And we have sin nature. We, we have sin nature, so we have problems to begin with. Yeah. So we, we didn't have to grab it. They were attacking him. Right. Now, it, Adam and Eve had no sin nature and still they fell to the temptation. Jesus did not fall to the temptation. He was the second Adam, as, as Paul said. He went through, he was tempted, and he did not fall. Uh, but he had bombardment, and I really believe he was bombarded you know, with temptation. Now, granted, he could have been, you know, there were probably times when God sent angels in a special way to keep him, you know, keep him. But he was, he was tempted in ways that nobody else has ever been tempted in, you know, as far as intensity. The same temptations everybody else had. You know, when he went in... 40 days in the wilderness, yeah. Even beyond that, he was tempted... His whole life. He was tempted his whole life. Satan needed to destroy him. Just one stumble would destroy any, any, any stumble, any sin would have wiped out the mission that he came to earth for. He had to be the perfect lamb going to the cross. He's the tested, tried stone. That meant from all of his childhood, never doing anything wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there was all of this going on. Now, granted, he was God and he was man and all these things, so he did have some extra, extra help, but it was still an extraordinary thing to go through the raging hormone changes of a teenager and not give in to the desires that the body was now adding on top of the mind and the temptations that would, would be attacked, attacking him. Uh, to have that purity, you know, uh, to be able to go through and not sin. It's an amazing thing. And then he comes to live in us so that we can have that same power indwelling in us to have no future sin if we were really, if we really submitted to him completely. Now, none of us have ever completely submitted to God, probably never will, <laughs> but we can draw closer to him and closer to him and have more victory, and hopefully that's what you experience. The, the closer you draw to God, the more he indwells, you know, 
well, not more he dwells, but more he comes out of you, uh, the more victory we have because we're letting him crucify our flesh. And there comes a point where we get pretty close to, to living it right as long as we don't get proud. Yeah. <laughs> because we can get proud. Oh, God, I've been doing this so well. Uh-huh. No. <laughs> You know, and immediately we get, we get toppled. But Jesus is that tried, precious stone that did not fall to sin, which is why he could be the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb that took on him's body all the sin of the world. And, you know, we think about that. I think about that a lot. Jesus, no sin ever for all of eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity for all of eternity. He goes to the cross and all the sin of humanity is placed upon him and the Father has to turn, the, turn his back on Jesus. You know, I, I found it not that great a day at this communion when we were talking about it because I know that God had to forsake him because of the sin, but it, it never... I never fully understood it until that Sunday. I went, oh, he was totally sinned. God couldn't touch him. Couldn't touch him, couldn't comfort him. The Holy Spirit would not have been able to do it either because the price hadn't been paid. He was isolated for the first time ever. ever. Yeah. In all, I can't even say time, all of eternity. Yeah. The first time ever that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had been severed in their relationship and even during that time, he had no personal sin. Right. It was all ours. And, it was all ours. Yeah. and at that point, he was probably at the weakest and most vulnerable spot that he could be in. Yeah. Because he had all the sin of the world placed on him, and the Father had withdrawn from him, and the Holy Spirit had withdrawn from him, and he was all alone yeah. with the sin. And I, was saying, I can't imagine that. It's... It's... It's something we think we begin to understand, maybe. Yeah, and even there, we're, it's, we're not even fully understanding it. And, it, and it's the, the idea that I draw on is one of two relationships, either that very first boyfriend, girlfriend that you, that you have, and that's that intense, and then it breaks up, and you pine away for, for hours, days, weeks, whatever, you know. That is really nothing compared. The better one is somebody who's been married for 60, 70 years and the spouse dies. And you can just see the depression and loneliness on them. That's probably closer to what, but it's still not there. Yeah. See, I mean, once you're one with God, I mean, you voluntarily break that. And that's the whole thing, that he did it voluntarily knowing the ultimate cost, which is what we were talking about Sunday when we, when we said Jesus went to Gethsemane knowing what, uh, not, not Gethsemane, that, the Jerusalem, knowing what was going to happen a week later. Knowing it. That's even worse. Yeah. And like I said, you know, if any of us had done that, we'd have, we'd have, gone, we'd have gone, God, I'm not going there. But he knew before he was there. This is true. He knew yeah. from eternity. He knew, yeah. he knew ahead of time. I think that's when he really realized. 
It's when he experienced what he already knew. And you know, and this again, it's hard to figure this out because God knows everything, but how does he know something that's never happened in anything, but yet he has to know it, otherwise he's not omniscient. You know, it's hard to, that I can't, that I can't wrap my head around. Well, at that point it was, you know, I'm forsaken, and it, and it would have been, we can't fully understand it, but it is, they were ripped apart for a period of time. Just a second. And, you know, we think about this, and if you know anybody or if you've experienced divorce, divorce literally is a ripping apart of the life, and people think they're going to be happy when it's done. I've talked to a lot of divorced people. I've got a lot of divorced family members in my family, and they're still angry and bitter at the person that's, that's, that they divorced. And that is a ragged edge. And then when there's multiple divorces in somebody's life, they really have torn their soul and ripped it to sometimes to a point when they get to the third, fourth marriage, that they're really, their soul has been ripped so bad that there's not much there left for them. God and the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit had a ripping apart for a period of time. Now they're supernatural and were able to, to repair it and you know, repair it completely. But he experienced exactly what a divorced couple will find, a ripping up of, in the separation. And it was a painful experience for not just Jesus, but for the Father and the Holy Spirit as well. And that's something that I've just really started thinking about over probably the last year or two, that the Father paid a price for Jesus' sacrifice. And I never really thought about it until very recently. He paid a price. He had to abandon the Son for a period of time and tried stone. <laughs> you know, this is, Jesus went through a life that is so precious, so tried, you know, people would like to go, well, he was God. Of course he didn't sin. And there is a school of thought that says he could not have sinned. And I don't, I personally don't buy that because if he could not have sinned, then there was no temptation. Because he had free will. He was part of Yeah, well, he had free will. He could have made any decision that he wanted. Uh, but there is a school of thought that says because he's God, he was perfect. He could not have sinned. But there's no temptation if you can't sin. I mean, I could sit here with a, with a, big glass of alcohol in front of me, and it's not going to be a temptation to me to grab, grab that, that alcohol. Now, there's other things that would be a big temptation to me. Like That's not one of them. Yeah, free state. If it was free, you'd give it to me. That wouldn't be a temptation. I'd take it. <laughs> yeah, uh, but if something is not a, te- you know, if you're not tempted to do it, there's not a temptation there, if you're, or if you can't do it. Uh, so I personally believe that Jesus could have sinned. Uh, would, it, would he have? No, he did, was God. He had, he had some more you know, power to in that aspect. But there had to be some way that he could have. Otherwise, there's not a, he's not tempted. Why else would Satan be going, I'll give you this? Yeah, well, and that though was when he said, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, he was saying, I know you're going to get the kingdoms, and you, but you're going to have to go to the cross. I'll save you from having to go to the cross. Just, you know, just do 
just yeah. do it my way yeah. or do it your way. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was quite a temptation. Now, granted, he already owned them, so it didn't really matter. But, uh, but we know Jesus is that tried, precious stone. And when we really start thinking about really what he went through and knowing that he was going to do it and knowing from eternity past that he was going to do it and coming to this world, and I don't know when, as growing up, he really realized that I am God. I don't know. You know, it, you know did he grow into it? Did he know it from, from an infant? You know, when do we remember anything as an infant? You know, did he know it when he was two years old? Did he know it when he was three years old? I don't know when he actually knew that he was God. I know that it wasn't 30 when he started his ministry. At the temple, he was having great discussions with the, with the leaders, and they're looking at him like, how do you know this stuff? Yeah. There's, by 12, he knew yeah. something. And we could only speculate on that, and we don't know. We, we, maybe we'll ask him in heaven if we really care at that point. Uh, I've often thought when somebody goes, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk, I'm going to ask, I'm going, you probably won't even care. You're not going to care when you get there. I'm not sure about that. I think we're going to be learning in heaven for all yeah, of eternity. So. so there may be times for questions. These questions we have, there may be a time for us to ask these questions. Definitely won't be when we first get there. Yeah. You know, I wonder if you'll ask those questions. Yeah. We know we're going to go to the Bema seat. Well, that, yeah, but afterwards. Uh, one of the things about Jewish teachers is they, they would ask a lot of questions up front. When you look at Jesus, he very rarely answered a question directly. He'd ask them another question, get some feedback from them, ask them another question, then he'd give them a story. Right. Uh, and the reason for the questions was, where are you? What is your purpose? What, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? And, and what, is your actual, what is your actual question? Uh, and there's all kinds of stories about young, young mothers and fathers. They get their kid asking them, where do babies come from? And they go, well, you know, my four-year-old's ready for the, for the birds and the bees talk. And they give them, they go, well, no, I'm, you know, Johnny was from, <laughs> you know, from California. Or, you know, Susie was from where I didn't, I just wanted to know where babies come from. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is there a certain state? Yeah. Or what? <laughs> you know, and oftentimes we'll do that. We'll answer questions that aren't really being asked. You know, because we're thinking one way and they're thinking another way. And that even happens in church sometimes where somebody asks a question and somebody goes into a long theological, you know, correct answer. And they're going, well, I just really wanted to know, you know, you know, I was questioning this. Oh, you're, you're still on, you're still in first grade and I gave you the, the doctorate answer, you know, and, and maybe you didn't even answer the question you <laughs> at all. And so a lot of times Jesus would do that with people, ask questions, you know, rich young ruler, how, how, what must I do to be saved? And he goes, well, you know what to do. And he goes, talk about keeping the law. And, and then Jesus goes, you know, after he's answering, he goes, okay, you lack one thing, go sell everything you own. You know, what was he trying to teach him? You're not, even, you're not even obeying the first set of laws. You have another God that's more important than God. And uh, you know, so we want to be able to look at this and then God always tests us to see, are we going to be tried stones? 
we're not going to be perfect, but he wants to test us to say, are you somebody that I can count on? Are you a tried stone? And he's going to be spending the rest of our life trying us and perfecting us, putting us in the fire to work out the impurities. And one of the things that is so irritating is every time you think you've got things all put together, God puts you into a nice hot fire and draws more garbage out of your life. Usually in the same area that you thought you had accomplished a great victory in because he puts the fire up a little higher and says there's still more there. And with, you know, what I've been told about purifying metals is they keep heating them up to the point and then scraping off the garbage that gets boiled out of them and then reheating them up and more garbage keeps coming out of them, you know, for quite a few times. And I don't know how long that would, you know, how far you can go before you finally <laughs> get everything out of it. But God works in our life the same way. Let's turn the heat up just a little more. Oh, you, we got that, we got that garbage out. Let's turn it up just a little more. <laughs> and... It's very frustrating to us when we keep failing in the same area. But if we really look at it, we might look and say, oh, the fire was hotter. And this is why I've said to people, I'm not going to stand in judgment of some leader that falls, falls to a sin. How hot did that fire get before they fell? How many times had they been tempted and not fallen? You know, maybe I would have fallen years before they did if I was in the same situation. You know, and this is why we want to be careful about judging anybody for anything. You know, I'm not walking in their shoes. I don't know how many times they didn't fall. I don't know the intensity of, this, of the temptation that brought them where they are. My job as a fellow Christian is to give them grace. Now, if I'm invited into their life to help them you know, you know, work on it, then yes, I'm going to say, you know, I've, my friends that I, that I have that know me really well, and I know them really well, they, they have permission to, to come in and say, uh, uh, Ralph, uh, I've kind of noticed this about you, and I have the permission to do the same thing to them. Does that mean everybody has that permission to come and do that to me? No, I, I'm, I would be kind enough to probably not smack them upside the head, but you know, I'd be irritated, but I'd be gracious to them you know, uh, and give it some thought. <laughs> But our job is not to go to every brother and sister and point our, point our finger at them. <laughs> exactly, because usually what we're complaining about is something that we're bothered and falling, uh, falling under. Yeah, that's what I'm working on. People are irritating me, and they're not going to change. Nope. So I have to change. I don't want to change. And the change that basically yeah. that we have to learn is to be able to give grace and mercy. Uh, even as a pastor, my job is not to walk around the church pointing my finger at everybody. My job is to love people, to teach God's word, which is going to be hard enough on people when I teach God's word, but to love and give grace. And this is what God does in our life. He gives us love and he gives us grace. He turns the fire up to make us see that we're not perfect. And he gets that garbage pouring out and he scrapes it off. Let's, let's it sit there for a while and then turns the heat up. <laughs> but his job is really he wants to perfect us. So that when we get to heaven, it's not a shock. There's going to be a lot of people that get to heaven and they're just not going to know how to handle anything because all of a sudden their whole life is going to be totally twisted upside down because they haven't let God work the garbage out of their life.
and I'm assuming that they're saved. Yeah. Uh, you know, my goal is to make that transition you know, by living with God as best I can. I want to make the transition as small as possible. Oh, wow, there's some of me missing, but, not, but the bulk of me is here. Yeah. The bulk of who I am is here with God. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, that besetting sin is gone. Oh, wonderful. The, the, oh, that area that tempted me that I didn't usually fall in, it's gone. Oh, right, God, thank you. But, you know, we sit back and we look. And I've said this over and over. After walking with God for so long, every time I think something's taken care of, he'll just shine the light a little deeper. He'll turn the heat up a little bigger, a little deeper. I'm going, God, I, would you stop that, God? Can't I just enjoy Enjoy it for a little while. Uh, a tried stone. Somebody that somebody can look at and say, this is, this is good. Paul told Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ. And that should be our goal with people. You know, we should be able to tell people, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not the best, perfect example of when I'm doing it right, follow. <laughs> and that is our goal. And verse 17 says, Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and water shall overflow the hiding place. So God says, I'm going to send judgment. I'm going to lay it on the line. And this literally means if you've done any kind of construction or watched them, they'll take the line and they'll stretch it out and they'll snap the chalk line and they'll use it to... to make a nice even row of, of bricks or, or fence. Uh, he says, I'm going to send judgment to make a line so that you'll know where the level is. And the only thing is, as all good things go, God raises the, <laughs> raises the bar. Okay? Uh, and I've shared with you, when I would work in restaurants, you know, I would tell people on their reviews, on their annual review, I'm going, you need to step it up. Well, I'm, I'm working just like I did last time, and I was an excellent last time. I'm going, that's the problem. You're still working at the level that you were last year, but we are now here. And you haven't joined us at the higher level. And God will do the same thing to us. He keeps raising the bar. Uh, we make... We make the, the attainment, and we think we're doing pretty good, and God says, no, but you're not, you're not to me yet, so come on. Uh, let's go to the next one. And he says, righteousness to the plummet, which is the same thing, the, the chalk line type thing, the leveling tool. And then he says, the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and water shall overflow the hiding place. If our strength is not in God, the trials will sweep us away. And we've all been there. If nothing else, we were there when we were sinner, you know, sinners before Christ. But even afterwards, all of us have been in a place where we put our, our confidence in something other than God. And God is going to make sure that when we have confidence in something else, he's going to wash the sand out from under that something else and take it away from us. Because he wants our confidence to be in him, our refuge in him. And if we're building our house on a pack of lies and sand, God's going to say, we're not going to let this happen. If we're building a, a reputation for God on, on a bunch of lies to people, he's going to expose those lies. And everybody will see the lies that we're living under. God's very jealous when it comes to his reputation and the way we deal with it. And he's going to say, no. 
It's going to be me or it's not going to be anything else. You're not going to do it in your own strength. It's going to be me as your refuge. It's going to be me as your strength. And this is why I say it's so wonderful. To me, it becomes a very wonderful, calm experience to know that the Christian life is really easy to live as long as I let God live it through me. If I try to live it out, it's miserable. You know, I'm always worried about stepping the wrong way, doing the wrong thing, trying to, trying to work, striving so hard to, to walk God's way. And when I do it the right way and say, God, just come in and crucify me. <laughs> God, I want you to live through me. Life becomes so much easier. Not that we're going to get perfect because God turns up the heat and we find something else that has to be sacrificed and, and crucified. And we give that up. And hopefully we learn to do it quickly. And that usually comes through maturity. Verse 18 says, And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then you shall be trodden down by it. So he's going, all those things you have confidence in. You have confidence in the temple. You have confidence in, in the fact that you're my people. You're, you're building this house of lies. And God says, I'm going to knock it down. And how easy is it? I don't know if anybody has ever tried to do a, you know, stack your cards up in a house, you know, and, and all it takes is somebody opening the door or a window and a puff of, <laughs> puff of air come, breeze comes through, knocks it down, or somebody walks too hard by the table or actually bumps the table. <laughs> And the whole house just falls. <laughs> and God's saying, I'm going to tear it down. Your, li your, your lies, your house of cards, I'm going to, it's going to fall. And God's going to make sure it falls. You know, we're, going through, we're going through David's life, and there was so much that David had confidence in, and yet God's saying, your confidence still isn't completely in me. And he pushed David to the limit in many cases. God will push us to the limit to say, is your confidence in me? And if we learn to put our confidence in him, then it's like smooth sailing. God, what storm were you talking about? What storm is everybody talking about? I don't, I don't remember any storm. And then we kind of look back and look at the, the, the mess that's behind us and going, where, where, did, where did all that, where'd all, where'd all the, the washes and stuff get filled with rocks and stuff? God, you know, God, I just don't understand it. I don't, you know, I was focused on you. And when our eyes are focused on him, it doesn't matter what comes our way. When our eyes aren't focused on God, it doesn't matter what comes our way. <laughs> anything will knock us over. Uh, they'll say, you can knock me over with a feather. Well, if our confidence and attention isn't on God, we'll get knocked over by the feather. You know, when our confidence and focus is on God, we can go through the hurricane you know, and the uh, tidal waves and everything and not even notice them and go, wow, what, what, what just happened? We're walking on the water in the middle of the storm like Peter until he takes his eyes off Jesus and then realizes, I can't walk on water, and this is a pretty bad storm. I'm not even supposed to be in the water at this time. And he starts sinking because he took his eyes off Jesus. If our eyes stay on Jesus, we don't notice the storm. We don't notice the things going on. We take our eyes off him, and anything can knock us over. Uh, verse 19. From the time that it goes forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over, and by day and by night, and it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. So it says, when everything starts moving, it's going to be morning by morning, 24-hour periods of time, 
uh, and then he goes, it shall be by day and by, by night, another way of saying it, and it shall be a vexation, an object of trembling to understand the report. So every time we look around, everything was going to make us tremble. And have you been in a place where your trials just seem to go on forever? That's what this is saying. <laughs> day by day, morning by night, just keep going. And every time you hear something, you're ready to shake and, and tremble. Uh, I hear it all the time from, mostly from my, you know, unsaved relatives. Well, what else can happen? Or, you, you know, it, you know, it doesn't, it, if it, it's rain, it pours, you know, and all these different very negative things, you know. And it's like, are you just looking at God? You know, just rest in God. He's got a purpose. And when you're resting in God, it's like, okay, God, you know, this is, you know, sometimes it's kind of fun. Okay, God, what's, what's next? <laughs> what's next, God? You know? uh, and here it is, trembling at what's coming. And God is saying, just rest in me. Yeah. And again, we go back to what we were talking about. Just because we're a Christian and resting in him does not mean we're going to get away scot-free when these things come. But he gives us the grace to go through them. And this is the wonderful thing. No matter what we go through, when our eyes are on God, he says, my grace is sufficient. I'm going to get you through this. We just hide in him. And we go through. And my, the thing I tell everybody all the time is, I'm not going to let circumstances give me a bad day. I'm not going to let people give me a bad day. I'm resting in God. I don't always give that part to, to everybody, but I want to rest in God and not let myself get affected by what's happening. Because ultimately, I understand one thing that's very important. God's in control. And if he's allowing something in my life, that means he's got a reason for it. I'm not always going to understand the reason, but he has a reason for it. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I love the book of Job, especially those first three chapters where we get to see what's going on. Satan going to Jesus and getting permission to do what he's going to do. Now, the thing that bothers me is that God points Job out. God kind of says, you can do that. You know, God gives him his parameters. <laughs> You know, which kind of scares me on one side. It's like, okay, God, you're, you gave him very wide parameters. Now, with everybody, doesn't get those wider parameters with everybody. But the closer we are to God, and the more he feels he can trust us, may get us some very heavy-duty parameters that come our way. Uh, so that when, in one side is, if we're really severely being pressed and hammered, that should actually give us some encouragement because God thinks we're strong enough to deserve it. Yeah. And the hammering brought them to God and they were successful and got rewarded for it with harder temptations. <laughs> but with those temptations come the rewards and the blessings of serving God. Okay. Uh, we look at a uh, George Mueller who gets deeper and deeper and deeper into prayer to the point where you know, he's not just praying for a couple hundred you know, uh, 10, 20 pounds to pay his monthly bills. He's paying for 10,000 pounds a month to pay the bills. He's supporting missionaries all around the world. You know, he didn't get there overnight. 
he didn't get there really without many, many falls and slips. You know, we look at somebody like a Corey Tenboom who's being taught after everything's done. She's then now goes, she thinks everything's over, and God says, now I'm going to teach you to forgive. I want you to forgive those soldiers that guarded you, that raped the women, that abused you, the women. I want you to go now and forgive them. You know, uh, not an easy task. You know, not an easy task. And it keeps going where God says, I'm going to give you the grace, but I'm going to take you to the next place and the next place. Now, if we just concentrated on the fact that he's going to keep testing us at a higher and higher level, that would be depressing. Yeah. My God, you mean every time I get victorious, you're going to make the life harder on me? But on the same side comes the blessings of the service that he opens up to us. Every success is rewarded with the higher level of service that we can do for him. And the greater, and then we get people looking at us and saying, I want to be like that person. Well, no, I don't know if you really want to be with me. You know, people go, I would like to be like Billy Graham. Well, I watched a documentary just the other night on, on the life of Billy Graham and how bad Christians treated him, especially in his early years. When he would, he was a, in the forefront of the segregation battle, he would not do a service if they tried to keep this audience segregated. And he got all kinds of flack for it. He got flack for going to Russia and, and China when, when they were the enemies of the United States. And he's going, they need God as much as anybody else. You know, he caught a whole lot of flack that I never realized that, that he went through. You know, he went through a lot of trials to present the message that God loves all people. And was pressured by a lot of people because of it including other Christians. Uh, and that's the thing we have to understand. Sometimes our worst attacks are going to come from Christians, not the world. Uh, Paul's biggest attacks came from people who were supposedly Christian. You know, what is this grace message that you're talking about? You, know, you, you think you can just get saved and, and, God, and do what you want. You know, and that's never what Paul said, but that's how a lot of people took it. You know, well, if you believe in this grace thing, that means you can get saved and you could just go live like the devil and you're going to heaven and you're going to be all happy. No, that's, that's not even close to the grace message. When we fully begin to start understanding grace, we don't want to sin. We just know that if we do, God's going to forgive us. But our heart and our desire should be, God, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to bring tears to your eyes. I want to live the way you want me to live. I want to live as close to perfection as I humanly can as you're crucifying my flesh. But the good news is, is when I do fail, yes, God, you're going to forgive me because I'm going to ask for forgiveness and I'm going to try better the next time to let you crucify my flesh. And that's the thing that these people don't understand when they think about grace. You know, I know many pastors don't teach grace because they're afraid that their congregation will just start living like the devil if they're taught grace. I, when I teach grace, and I've seen grace taught for so many years, I've seen more lives changed by God's grace being shown to people than any amount of legalism and law. Because when we're given legalism and law, we rebel. I do. 
Somebody, and I've told you all, if somebody tells me I can't do something, my first reaction is, why not? You know, why can't I do what you're telling me I can't do? And if it doesn't make sense, I'm probably going to go do it because it made no sense to not do it. But when we live under God's grace, it's God, man, God, you're so forgiving, you're so patient, I want to do, God, I don't understand why you're saying not to do it, but I just want to do it because I love you that much because of how gracious you are to me. Does that mean there's not a time for discipline and punishment? No, there's always time for discipline and punishment. And God says, if you're going to disobey, you're going to get the punishment, but he still loves us and gives us grace. And we need to be able to learn to give grace to one another, to build one another up. And that doesn't mean, grace does not mean I don't say that, you know, hey, you know, now son, <laughs> I told you not to drive the car at 75 miles an hour in the 25 mile zone, you won't get the car. You know, it's still grace. Grace sometimes brings punishment, but not condemnation. And law brings condemnation. And Romans 8, 1 tells us there is now therefore no condemnation in those that are in Christ Jesus. God does not condemn us when we're in Christ. He'll convict us. He'll punish us. <laughs> no, but he's not going to condemn us. And his love and his grace will keep us moving forward. And this is so great. God says, I'm going to sweep away all your lies. You're living in these lies. I'm going to sweep them away and I'm going to bring them to nothing, or they're going to be trodden down. Uh, you're going to be suffering day and night. And this gets kind of interesting, then he goes in verse 20. For the bed is shorter than the man can <laughs> stretch himself, and the covering narrower, narrower than he can wrap him. In other words, he's saying there's no comfort. Okay, there's no comfort. Your bed is too short. You, you're laying in it, and your feet are hanging off the end of it. And a matter of fact, your covering is so small, you can't even wrap up in it. Uh, it's so narrow you can't wrap up, which means if you turn it the other way, your feet are uncovered. If you, you know, he's, he's saying you're not going to find comfort. If our comfort isn't in Christ, we're not going to find comfort. And this happens to us when we try to find our release in, in sin. The, the people who start getting into alcohol and eventually find out that alcohol no longer numbs numbs the pain. Uh, they get into drugs and they find out it no longer you know, numbs, the, numbs them, uh, or not long enough anyway. Uh, this is what he's saying. You're, you're in a bed that's too short, and you've got a cover that, that won't cover you. And, uh, and it says, the Lord shall rise up in Mount Perizim, and he shall be wroth with the valley of Gibeon. And in Perishin, was a, uh, was a plain that God, God worked, in, uh, worked in the people's lives. It, uh, and then uh, Gibeon is a place that's about five miles from Jerusalem. It's a, it's a valley. Uh, and it says that God works in strange ways to bring to pass his acts, his strange acts. And the word for strange here is foreign, is foreign unusual, something that doesn't make sense to us. And you know, this happens in our life all the time. How many times does God do something that just doesn't make any sense to you? Does it all the time to me, and I know I've been around him for a long time, and he still does things that doesn't make any sense. 
He does things in his way that makes sense to him. And because we don't know everything there is to know, we don't understand why he's doing it. It just seems strange. Now, Jesus said that we're to love our enemies. That's pretty strange for the flesh. You know, we're to do good to them, but, you know, not even just love them. We're to do good to them, even when they're trying to hurt us. Jesus says, if you're compelled to take go a mile, go an extra mile. And that comes from the time that the Roman soldiers could walk up to any citizen and make them carry their pack for one mile. And usually what people would do is as soon as they hit that mile marker, they, would, they wouldn't even be kind to it. They would toss it off of them and, and get out of there. They had walked their mile. And Jesus saying, take it another one. Take it another one. Just You're showing kindness to them, unbelievable kindness to them. How often do we see the strange acts of God <laughs> to us, those foreign, you know, we as Christians are pilgrims and foreigners in this world. People should look at us and say, and, you know, and I make fun of it all the time, they should be really literally saying, those Christians are weird. You know, you, you mistreat them and they'll, and they'll be nice to you. You call them names and they just smile at you and, and are kind to you. Uh, you know, bad things happen to them and they don't, get up, you know, they don't get all angry and upset. We should be people that are just strange to people. And this is our ultimate testimony. It will draw people. They'll, they'll look at us and say, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I kind of like it. You're kind of weird, but I kind of like what I'm seeing. You're peaceful, you're calm, you're... You're, you're kind. I kind of like it. I don't understand it. I don't think I could be that way. But it attracts them. It repels and attracts them at the same time. And if you think about this before you were a Christian, there were probably Christians you looked at and said, that, that person's a real Christian. You know, if, there, if there is such a thing as a real Christian, that person's one. I don't really know. I can't live like that. But I'm, I'm kind of drawn. I'm kind of drawn and yet repelled by it at the same time because I'm looking at it and saying, I'd like to be like that. I don't know that I can, but those are the things that draw people to finally make a decision for Christ. When they look at a Christian who's being strange as far as the world's concerned, but it compels people to, to look at it. Uh, when I watched the, the Case for Christ movie with Lee Strobel and how his wife drew him finally, when she finally learned to quit quit leaving all the tracks around and trying to, trying to witness to him all the time, but just love him and be a, be a good wife when he was not being worthy of, of having a good wife. And it, you know, he's being attracted and yet repelled. He you know, didn't quite know what was going on. That is what happens in so many relationships as people are drawn to Christ. You see this person, they just don't act the way that you would expect them to act. And you're going, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And we see this over and over in, in God acting with us. He does the same thing to us. He doesn't treat us the way we would think we need to be treated, which makes us draw toward him. Kind of, kind of shy at some way. So I don't deserve this. I don't really know. Am I walking into a trap? Is it, you know, what, what's going on here? And we learn to trust him more and more, and we're drawn more and more to his, his strange ways. And verse 22, Now therefore be you not mockers, lest your bands be made strong, for I have, 
heard from the Lord God the host of consumption, even determined upon the whole earth. So God says, you're going to be judged. <laughs> Quit being mockers because when you mock, your bands get tighter. When you pull against God's judgment, things get harder. And this is very true. I've been told even with handcuffs and, and, and well-tied knots, the more you struggle against them, the tighter they get. Uh, and God's basically saying, quit being a mocker. Quit struggling. Uh, now, I've never had an experience of being handcuffed, but I've been told even by the officers out there that these guys, when they fight the cuffs, they end up tighter. Uh, and I do know that if you tie the proper knots on, on things, there's, there's knots that you can tie that if somebody fights against them or the animal fights against them, the knot can get tighter. And hopefully to the, you know, the idea is that they'll eventually stop, stop fighting. And that's what God's saying. Quit fighting. <laughs> Quit being a mocker. He says the consumption, the ruin is, is, is upon you. And he goes, and it has been determined. God is going to make it happen. And this is something we, I say all the time. God is going to have his way. He is sovereign. He is going to have his way. Now, how he has his way and we have any measure of free will, I don't understand that at all. But the one thing I know is God gets his way. Now, he can be the, you know, maybe he's the master at, at manipulating the, the situation. I've done that with, with workers and everything. I've, I know what I want to do, and I, I walk them down a path so that when they get to where a decision's made, and they make, they make the decision that I wanted to be made anyway, and they're convinced they made the decision, which is great. It, they've bought into it. But I've oftentimes walked them down a path to the place where the decision's made, and they make the decision that I want. It doesn't always work. But you know, I think God can do that. You know, he had Saul riding on a horse to Damascus to go arrest Christians. He knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and started talking to him. You know, and we all, and I've said this many times, Saul could have said, no, I'm not gonna follow you. Now nobody in their right mind, when they're knocked down, talk to, talking to God and blinded, is gonna say, no, I'm not gonna do what you said. I just don't believe you still. Technically, Saul had that option. He could have said, nope, not going to do it. Uh, if he was that insane, then God would have done something else. But, uh, but God will get his way, whatever it takes. Balaam's writing to go get his reward that God told him he wasn't supposed to get, but finally relented because of his pride. And an angel standing in the path to kill him, and the donkey leaves the, the road three times. He starts beating the donkey on the third time, and the donkey starts talking to him. Uh, 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 and that, it, the donkey talking to him doesn't really blow my mind. I mean, it's God. He can do that. The fact that Balaam talked to the donkey like he did this every day is what blows my mind. Yeah. You know, the donkey says, what have I done to you? And he starts you know, talking to the donkey. If, if I had an animal actually talking to me, uh, I think I would be stopping very quickly. Now, I know animal lovers talk about their animals all talking to them, but I know that if their animal ever actually spoke to them in verbal words, it would freak them out. Yeah. But God got his way with Balaam. You know, 
He says, all right, if I have to use a donkey to talk to you, I'll use a donkey to talk to you, but if you keep going, you're going to be dead. And the donkey gets his attention, and God can speak to him now. You know, hopefully we don't need donkeys talking to us to get, us, get our attention. Uh, but God can use other things. He can use situations in our life. He can use deaths in our life, uh, tragedy in our life, you know, to get our attention and saying, you need to get, get your act together and do these things. He'll use whatever it takes to get his way. And if we're still going to reject him, it might just take us home. And I think a lot of people have died prematurely because they just would not bow to God's will. So God says, fine, time, for, time to come home then. You're not going to bend your knee. It's time to come home. And we've talked about this. I think Moses' death before they went in was because he would not bow and confess his sin. He kept blaming it on them. He never took responsibility for his sin to confess it because it was always, I'm not going into the promised land because of you guys. He never took the responsibility and God says, fine, you're not going into the promised land because you won't bend your knee. I think if he had bent his knee and repented, he would have had the pleasure to live to be 160 or something and you know, lead him in for another 40 years. But God will get his way. He is God. And God is righteous. He's somebody we want to be able to give, give in to. He says, it's coming. Quit fighting it. Be ready to repent. And for us as Christians, our job is to repent ourselves, pray for, our, pray for those around us, and give the gospel message out so that they can repent. I am really hoping that we can have a revival in America. The only way it starts, though, is for Christians to start spreading the gospel message and to live a life that's going to be foreign and strange to the world. Right now, too many Christians are living a life that there's no difference between them and the world. You know, Christians have a divorce rate the same or higher than the world. They have, they have as many Christians that are living together in, in fornication as the world has. We have as, as many drunken Christians as the world has. The percentages in the Christian church are no different than the world, and we wonder why the church has no power. Yeah. We're, we're, we're living just like the world. We're drinking, smoking, drugging, you know, sex, everything that we're doing is just like the world. Why in the world would the world care about Christianity? Well, you know, it's just like everybody else, you know, what am I looking for? Why are things like Wicca and witchcraft and demon worship getting so strong? because people are seeing real power in those areas. They're seeing power. And our churches are going, well, you know, God, uh, you used to do things, but you're not doing it anymore, so, you know, I'm just kind of getting used to it. Know that the church in this day, a lot of them are believing that the Holy Spirit stopped working, you know, 2,000 years ago. My Bible says God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're the ones that changed. We're not willing to give him the authority to make power. We're not giving, allowing him to heal people. We're not allowing him the opportunity to do miraculous things because we're too sophisticated. 
God doesn't do those kind of things anymore. He, he gave us the word. We don't, we don't need to see the miracles anymore. And this is the sad place for us. Not every Christian. You know, there's Christians out there that are praying for healing. They're expecting miracles. What are we willing to do to give God the opportunity to work? And we want to be able to sit back and say, God, you are wonderful. And he's still the same God. If you don't believe it, go to the Old Testament and see all the miracles he did in the Old Testament. And you want to talk about miracles, fire fell from heaven and burned up the entire altar and all the rocks and everything else. Yeah. Didn't rain. It's just because the prophet said it's not going to rain until I say it rains. Do any of us have that kind of confidence? You know, and it's hard. You know, where's the line of confidence and presumption come in? You know, we don't want to presume upon God, but at the same time, God wants to do some things that are going to show his power. And we need to get out of this idea that we're so sophisticated that we can't, you know, well, you know, God, we're, we're, we're scientific now. We know that there's reasons for these things, you know, so we, God, God does miracles. He still does miracles. I've seen the healings being done when, when nothing made sense. I've seen when the disciples spoke on the day of Pentecost and people, if you read the scripture very carefully, it says people heard their own languages. So was the miracle that they spoke in a different language or was the miracle that the people heard a different language? It doesn't matter to me which way it is. But the way the scripture reads, I think the people heard something different. I don't want to limit God on how he does anything. We need to trust God and be willing to say, God, <laughs> I, I love this when I see it because it really is foreign rather than strange. You know, His ways are foreign to us as in the flesh. But our ways as Christians should be just as foreign to the world. When the world sees a Christian, they should, you know, and I, and I make fun of it, you know, they, they should think we're weird because we are. As far as the world's concerned, we are weird. But don't we look at them the same way? How can you be so stupid? You know, how, how can you keep doing these weird things that are, because we have a different life, we have a different way of thinking, we have a different kingdom that we're under. I watch these TV shows anymore and I'm going, what weird ways of thinking? You know, I don't enjoy most TV shows anymore because they're so full of the world's way of thinking and it's so, their way of thinking is foreign to me. I mean, granted I've been there and I know it, so it's not completely foreign. I've been walking with God long enough that it's like, no, that is really not the way we're supposed to live. That is foreign, and it's becoming more and more foreign to me the closer I draw to God. Not that I'm perfect or anything, but it, it's, uh, I don't understand it. You know, I don't understand how any person who's not a Christian gets through any hard trial in their life. You know, what are you putting your trust in? I put my trust in God. He's in control. And the problem is, most times people don't make it through the trials in their life if they don't have God. They'll end up on a drunk. They'll end up on a, you know, you know, committing suicide because they have nothing to put their hope in. And this is so important for us to understand. God loves us. He has a plan for us. And he's going to make us more and more strange to the world and more and more closer to him but that same strangeness will draw people. They may, they, like I say, they, you know, and, and if, you, if you ever saw a Christian before you were walking with God, you probably thought the same thing. Boy, that person's strange. How, how can they be praising God in this situation? How can they be, 
How can, how can they not be at the bar, you know, bar tonight after what happened to them? God is doing foreign things in our lives. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Sorry, we went way over today. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you are a tried stone, precious stone, and that you try us and that you teach us to live more like you with each passing day that we walk with you. And we just thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.